I remember at high school, there was that point where there were just no teachers around. Maybe things were getting a little bit raucous, a little bit excited. Someone was arguing in one corner or maybe someone had just broken the window. There was a sense that things were just a little bit out of control. You knew that and too much noise is being made. The teacher's going to come in at any point and that you'd all be in trouble. The anticipation was in the air. Maybe we shouldn't have climbed on that roof. Maybe we shouldn't have been in that particular room or maybe we shouldn't have taken that thing that we took. The rules were completely clear. We all knew them. So were the punishments. We knew what was going to happen eventually. It was only really a matter of time. We all knew the situation. Friends, as we look these next two weeks, we're going to be looking at just a a small book of poetry. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. Uh, Tucked away at the end of the Old Testament. This is the book of Zephaniah, named after the author. It's where he is prophesying to the people of God, the people of Judah there in Jerusalem, and uh, there for a long time, similar to what I just said about school, they had been living in a way that they knew wasn't right. They'd been living against the law of God in opposition to him. It's because of this that I've really labeled this morning's sermon a dirge of destruction. Now this week, it's Valentine's Day. Gentlemen, this is just your reminder. Maybe you're technically single. Maybe you're not sure uh, what you're going to be doing this week. But perhaps some poetry will be written. I don't know. Tuesday, we'll see what happens. It's just your one reminder you're getting. Be thankful. But friends, the poetry we see here could not be further from that. As I read it for us in just a second, you'll quickly see how dark, how serious it is. God here being so clear for us. The God of the Bible The very same God that we worship here today. A holy and just God. To turn and rebel against him brings only destruction and judgment. Let me read the text for us. Turn there uh, to Zephaniah, just near the end of the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2 for us. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Friends, looking at that as I said, dark and hard to read text, even hard to receive. I think the the main point for our time together is to ignore God's ways and God's sovereignty brings God's judgment. To ignore God's ways and God's sovereignty brings God's judgment. This is really just going to guide our time together because it's the main point, I think, of this whole passage. You see it there summarized in verses 5 and 6. And I've got three points for us. They're going to uh, shape our time together, if you're taking notes. And they just really just follow those main sections of the text. So point one, 
a warning given. You're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. A warning given. Point two, judgment promised. Judgment promised in verses 7 to 18. And ending with third point, redemption offered. And that's just in those first three verses of chapter 2. Redemption offered. To look with me at those first six verses and our first point, a warning given. Really there, if you're looking at the text, the passage opens with a very history-packed first sentence. There's a, a lot there that we can learn. We don't have time to look at it all, but we see that straight away Zephaniah is named as the author. He is the one that God chose to deliver his message to Judah. And we see there that he has a heritage and it's a particularly special one. See, he has some royal blood. We see that he's descended from Hezekiah. What is more important really though for us is that this prophetic poem, this dirge, is, the passage says, the word of the Lord, primarily. Is the word of the Lord. That's what we open with. That's how we know that the I there, beginning in verse 2, is God speaking. These are his promises. This is God's vision that Zephaniah is seeing in his mind's eye and then delivering to God's people. I think secondly that we also know that this is written at the, the time of King Josiah. So all of a sudden, really importantly for us, as we look across the whole of scripture, we now see where and when in history this particular prophecy is happening. So to fully understand what is about to be said, we really need to know where and when it is being said and also to whom. Who is the audience? This is the people of God there in Jerusalem. It is the people of Judah. This is the people of God. This God is Yahweh. Uh, That's his name. And these are Yahweh's people. And every area of their lives were governed by him. Yahweh's rule was from the very top to the very bottom. It was led by the king and it covered absolutely everything. We'll see here it governed what they wore, what they ate, who they married, how they prayed, how they lived. This was everything. This was every area of society. This was social, political, cultural, and religious. So this is letting us know straight away that Josiah is on the throne. We know from history, uh, books like, even in the Bible, books like uh, Kings and Chronicles and others, that there had been good kings, those who uh, pointed the people to God, but there had also been terrible kings, those who completely led the people astray. It's very clear as we look at the Old Testament and even in this passage that when leaders fail to lead, devotion leads to decay. When leaders fail to lead, devotion leads to decay. But we see that Josiah... We know that after all the junk that had gone before, that he was a king that was trying to to really bring about reform. He was trying to bring the people back to obedience to what God had said. People knew the rules in Deuteronomy. Josiah cared. Josiah was trying. Just read 2 Kings or Chronicles. Josiah was reestablishing the worship of Yahweh. What we see there as we uh, look there at verses 2 and 3, And the rest of this first section, it really begins 
with God, not just speaking to the, the people of God, but speaking to the whole world. This is so helpful for us. We learn so much about who God is here. Look there at verses 2 and 3. God is making this announcement not just to everyone, but to everything. He's going to, it says, utterly sweep everything from the face of the earth. And working his way through all of creation, clearly just echoing Genesis 1. There is to be a reversal of creation. Man and beasts, birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas. And he's very clear, he's not just going to stop there with the animals. He says he will cut off mankind. You might immediately think, how can he do that? How can he say all of this? Is this just hot air? Is, is he just flexing here? Is he just speaking poetically? I think as we'll see, not at all. As the Lord of all things, as sovereign over every man and every beast and every fish, it is this God alone that can begin and end creation. All of it sitting within his hands alone. Christian, this morning, this is our God that we worship. This is our God. From the very outset of this passage, God is reminding all of the people who he is. He's not just a regional God. He's not just the God of a small tribe. He's the God of the universe. The God of all creation. The one And the only who knows all things and sees all things and created all things. The question why about everything in this world is all found in him. There is none above him, none beside him. He does not just sit on a shelf and he's not affected by you or me. You can't change him. You can't even fully understand him if we could he wouldn't be God I wonder if this is something we have completely forgotten as we go about our week as we worry about our tomorrow or we uh, think and we worry about the failing approval of maybe our spouse or uh, our parenting or we look to our boss or maybe even an inspector have we forgotten who God is is maybe you're here this morning and you've you've only heard about the god of the bible perhaps you've heard rumors perhaps someone on campus mentioned something to you about who god is and you're a little bit interested maybe you even think you follow god but really you're just following a god that you've created in your mind you're not following the god of the bible Perhaps to you this just sounds like a God of the West or maybe just a God who doesn't really care about anything. Here, right from the outset of our text, Zephaniah, and therefore God, is declaring for us in crystal poetic clarity, I am a holy God. There is none beside me. All of this is for me. You should worship nothing Apart from me. Friends, there is no doubt. I think you'll see this through this text. He is to be the Lord of all. Let me ask you this morning. Is he your 
Lord? Is he your Lord? That is what he's asking through this. We're going to come back to that in our third point. Having spoken generally as the the sovereign uh, Lord of the whole world, God then specifically begins to speak to his people. That is Judah here, as we said. They are the, the people in Jerusalem. Judah is just the name of the people. Language here, if you look at the text, so clear from God about how he will deal with his people. This real warning of judgment is forceful and seemingly imminent. I think each of us know that when you have a special relationship with someone, your responsibility towards them increases. So does really the impact of what you do. This is why that if today at lunch in the food court someone speaks really rudely to my wife, to Laura, she would probably be annoyed. She might even cry a little bit into her noodles or her tikka masala. But what if that person that spoke rudely to her was me? What if I was the one shouting at her and making her feel awful? I think that would be completely devastating for her. It would obviously be awkward for all of you that have joined us at the food court today. But how sad it would be for her, for she is my wife. My relationship to her is completely different to everyone else. Our proximity, the closeness that we have means that those words and those actions hit differently. Here we are seeing how the people of God have responded to God. They are his people. There in verses 4, 5, and 6, we see this fury of God being warned. We've read first the the accusations, and then we have this main thesis statement of the whole message of Zephaniah. They're specific. The Lord knows where they have been, what they have been doing. He sees how some of the people have been sleeping with the prostitutes at the temple of Baal. He knows how some of the priests think that He can't see when they sneak up to their roofs during the day to worship the sun or they are up there at nighttime bowing before the moon doing yoga or reading their star signs or whatever was popular with cosmological worship. He also sees those that attempt to worship two gods. Those who want to have or are seeking two masters. On the one hand, they, they praise Yahweh. But really, they're just... On this side, keeping their bets open, hedging their bets with Milcom, hoping that uh, maybe if they think Yahweh lets them down in some way, that really Milcom will step in and fill the void. As people of God have known him. They've known Yahweh historically and culturally. But in their hearts, there is nothing but deceit and empty praise. Verse 6 you look there, it just flatly includes those who just, sorry, just flatly deny the Lord. They demonstrate what is going on in their hearts through their lack of repentance, their lack of devotion, their ceasing to pray. Maybe they grew up in a God-fearing home, but now that they're on their own, maybe they live with their friends in Jerusalem, now they know they can just do whatever they like. 
It says they do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And for some of you, you already know what I'm going to say. This is you. For some of you, you are perhaps looking forward to this being you. To get away from home. Away from here. Just to do your own thing. Friend, let me warn you. Let me plead with you this morning. Nothing. Absolutely nothing out there or wherever you're imagining compares to who God is. Not that girl you're imagining. Not those parties you're thinking about. Maybe not even that Sunday morning just lying in bed doing nothing that you wish you could have sometimes. Ask any Christian here. Ask me. We've all been there in some way, whether in a bottle, whether in a relationship, whether in a nightclub, doing something, pursuing something, something else. All of it is nothing without God. It really brings us to our second point. Point number two, we're going to look at verses 7 to 18. We see judgment promised. Only God can judge me. Or only God can juge me, as one of the tattoos I saw with judge spelt wrong on the internet this week. But people really think that. I really wonder if they really understand what they are saying. I think when we understand who God is, do people really want the judgment and the wrath of God poured out on them? Or what about perhaps one of the most unchristian phrases out there? I am enough. You are enough. Again, another popular tattoo out there. Don't worry, these are not on my short list of things to get put across my bag. But these kind of phrases do point to a misguided idea, something on our own, something our sinful heart tells us. Either I am all that I need or that I really, that really no one can tell me what to do. It's all about me. I wonder if you're honest, is, is this where you're at this morning? Is this how you've arrived thinking, I am enough? Why has this person invited me to church? I am enough. Or perhaps you, you really like being in church. Perhaps you even enjoy reading the Bible. You're happy to study it. But honestly, you can't stand it when I or someone else begins to talk about sin. You hate being held to account. How dare someone else tell me what to do? You're a good guy. You work really hard, even particularly kind. Who is this guy telling me that I'm sinful in some way? Come on, surely there are some worse people out there. And all of these kinds of arguments, these questions, it's exactly what God is dealing with there in verse 7 and through to 18. Look Look at verse 7 with me. 
Be silent before the Lord God. Stop with the arguing and the, oh, but please, or the, oh, well, I was just going to stop. God is saying here, stop the arguing. Stop the denial. This is what's happening. Throughout the book, we see this day of the Lord. See it mentioned in the There is a real urgency and nearness to what Zephaniah is saying. The warning has been given, but now we see the judgment being promised. For those that have denied God, there really is a coming judgment, a day that is the Lord's, a day that is no one else's, where there should be, there will be silence and reverence. God will provide a sacrifice. On this day, it is the Lord's glory that is at stake. Really, all of this is about his worship and the devotion that he deserves and no one else, not even you. You are not enough. All of this shows us how we should approach him with devotion, with respect. Going straight to the top, the text, Zephaniah there, goes straight to the officials of the state and the the king's sons. Note, not the king specifically, but those that have been in power, those that allowed these practices, this syncretism to take over Jerusalem. That's where religions, different religions are mixed, where people are saying that they follow the Lord, but really they're also involved in their local pagan worship of a false god. This is why in verses 8 and 9 we, we see the mention in the, the, of the ways in which they've adopted these foreign practices. They've really completely moved away from what the Lord had called them to at that time. It's how in verse 9 there are still those that are practicing even silly superstitions. They're not walking under ladders. They're wearing lucky socks to work. And they're still doing things like worshipping Dagon. Things that because this false god years before had fallen and people decided not to step over the threshold, people are still doing that. Even though this false god was shown to fall on his face before Yahweh. Just a small side note, if I receive just one more suggestion on Instagram that as a Capricorn under the new moon And as Jupiter aligns with Saturn that I should do something or say something, I'm just going to throw away my phone. These kind of superstitions drive me utterly crazy. That today, wonderfully, we live under the new covenant. We live where there is freedom to eat, to dress, to drink in a way that those in Jerusalem, those here would not have understood or been permitted. But in whatever way that might be. Let me ask you, are you in danger today, even this week? Are you in danger of trying too hard to be like the world? That's a good question to ask yourself. Are you in danger of trying too hard to be like the world? Perhaps it's tempting to just blend Christianity and Islam to try and fit in with maybe your neighbors or your friends. I think this kind of Syncretism is a real danger, but also a real temptation to talk about God, you know, in general terms, but to never mention Jesus Christ. 
to mention God's love, God's grace, but never say how this is shown perfectly and completely at the cross where Christ died to take our punishment and then rose again on the third day, beating sin and death. It is so tempting, I feel as myself, just to be welcoming, just to be loving. And of course, we must be. But to do all of those things, so tempting to then not share the gospel. I felt convicted and and sad last week. I shared this uh, on Sunday night. There was a man who uh, several of us knew he died suddenly. I thought about the many cups of coffee that I'd made him. But also how many times I'd shared the gospel with him. That was a hard thing to think through. To realize, to think, yes, we cared well for him. He was very welcome. We also need that reminder to continue to share the gospel with people. It's hard to hear, but we need to be bold, to stand firm in who we are as Christians here in Russell Khyber and continue to fight the temptation to just be polite. Never mention people's need for a savior and how that is only, only found in Jesus Christ. Then our second point here, just in these verses, we see eight different references to this coming day. Verse 7 tells us that it is near. And then we get to verses 10 to 18. We learn more about how this will specifically happen to Judah. As the wrath of God is poured out. And again, why it is happening. We see areas of Jerusalem mentioned. The fish gate is a little bit like Mina. The second quarter, probably a bit like al Date. The hills really like Al-Rams and Mortar there in verse 11 we're not entirely sure where it is people don't want to go there that often so it's probably very like Nakheel I imagine the Lord here is naming these areas of Jerusalem and is clearly saying that no one and no area of the city will not be affected by this judgment there will be and it says they're crying Wailing, crushing, punishing. Friends, loud and unavoidable is the wrath of God. Even here on his own people. It is a day where the things of this world will be removed and burned up. Previously, this people clearly had enjoyed God's good blessings. Good things from God named in verses 13. Houses to live in. Places where they had enough space to grow vineyards, to enjoy the great gift of wine. All of this to be removed. We see why. Look there uh, back at verse 12. God will search Jerusalem carefully. Not just indiscriminately, but carefully with a lamp. There is care, a level of detail shown. And there is a reason given. I wonder if you see it. He says, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. There are many people today, maybe even you here this morning, that scoff 
at religion and at God. They either think, you know, all religions are the same, or which we know they're not, or they say all gods are the same. Like Buddha or Allah, they're all the same God, which we know they're not. Or they completely dismiss God and say that either he isn't real or that if he is, you know, he's just sitting somewhere on a cloud, just watching what happens. He doesn't really care. He's just happy that he made the world. The accusation here is that he won't do good, nor will he do ill. He doesn't care. He's not even involved. Friends, this could not be further from the truth. This passage shows us that he cares a lot. He sees it all. Through all of this, he is reminding us that he is the only God. He is the only one to be worshipped. What is missing in this text, notably really in Zephaniah, is how this will all happen. The day is coming. The judgment is promised to be poured out, but we don't actually know how this will happen. We know it'll come quickly, verse 14 says. That it'll sound like bitterness, but we're not sure the point and the means by which Yahweh will bring about this distress and anguish, this ruin and devastation. As we consider this, this day of the Lord, I think we've been given just a mixture of visions, one near and also one far. But I also don't think this day is just one particular day. It's not just one particular event, but several that center all around the theme of Yahweh's victory and Yahweh's glory. This is his day. This is when, using all the things of this world, the nations, the armies, the kings, the rulers, the oceans, the sun, God at various points reminds the people of who he is and how he is to be praised. All of these do point to a final day, a final time, as he said himself, where there will be final judgment, a final victory, and also an eternal worship of the true and living God for his people. For part of Zephaniah's prophecy, I do think the fact that it came 20 years before the Babylonian captivity is of great significance. I do think that's where we see a lot of this prophecy come to fruition. Despite Josiah's faithfulness and the poor kingdom he inherited, the the Babylonians entering Jerusalem and then taking many into captivity and exile is the judgment of the Lord. Poetic darkness just continues there in verses 15 and 16 where we read about when people turn away from God, there is darkness. And that this spiritual rebellion means spiritual death. All of this really sounds brutal to our modern ears and I imagine it was an utterly terrifying prophecy for Zephaniah to understand and then to deliver as a resident of that particular city. But I don't think it should be a surprise. Friends, we see here that God is simply keeping his word, that he is faithful to his people and to his promises and that to the covenant he has made with them. God in his word, in his revelation, is so 
clear. God has spoken. Through verse 17, we move again to this view of the whole world. It says a distress on mankind because they have sinned against the Lord. This is to all people. The old book of Deuteronomy again in view here. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. It says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then to 16 verses later we read, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verses 17 and 18. If this was where we ended today, I would argue that it was somewhat hopeless. This judgment, this destruction, this power, and this wrath of God, all displayed, but really all expected. I would say that it was fair. I wouldn't like it. But God has spoken. God is very clear. Follow and obey me and I will keep you. Turn from me and rebel and you'll be thrown out. It says consumed there in the text. And then devastated. Coming to a, a sudden end as promised at the end of verse 18. It says neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. Friend, there is nothing that you bring to the table. You can't buy your way. You can't earn it. You can't sacrifice anything on your own. Not working hard or doing good will save you. Here we're seeing clearly how holy God is. He is good and we are not. He is great and we are not. He is holy and we are not. Thankfully, friends, he is also gracious in loving and we are not. Turn with me just to that beginning of chapter two and then our final point. Point three, redemption offered. Redemption offered, just in those first three verses of chapter two. I've said it already, but really the main issue is sin and rebellion against God. This is not just the issue of Judah and Jerusalem, but it's the issue of all people. Even here today, this is each of our problems. We are all born as sinners and we have all rebelled against God and rejected him. Sad to say we've all done it even this morning. These first three verses of chapter 2, we see just a glimmer of hope. In amongst all of the dust of darkness, destruction still thick in the air. Even with this complete guarantee of judgment, again repeated in verses 1 and 2. Still, there's an opportunity. But, it comes still with a warning. It says, before it takes effect... Before the day, it says, passes away in a flash like the chaff does. Before the anger of the Lord comes upon you. 
there in verse 3, we have this call to repentance. There is still an opportunity for some to be saved. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This repentance, this salvation, God says, is graciously offered by him. It's because he wants their hearts. He wants their obedience. Look there, three times we see the word seek. Look at verse 3. I think these three all wonderfully woven together, seeking the Lord, seeking righteousness, seeking humility. I saw a book this week entitled, You Can. The blurb said that deep down inside of each of us, inside of you, special person, is the ability to achieve your dreams and climb the highest mountain. Friends, this is what the world is selling. This is what the world believes. This is what your sinful heart is telling you every day. You can. You can do it. Who are you relying on? Who is your rock and where is your hope placed? You can't do it on your own. These are crucial questions. We often talk about repentance negatively. Don't do this. Don't do that. But here we see that repentance and trusting God is seeking him. Looks like pursuing him, his will, and not your own. It is turning from this and that, but it is also orienting your whole life to God. Christian, you have hope because the judgment of God is guaranteed, but so is salvation for all who trust in Jesus Christ. The judgment of God is guaranteed, but so is the salvation for all who trust in Jesus Christ. Zephaniah carries on. It is the humble who do God's commands. Friends, truthfully, that will just mean picking up your Bible. It means studying it. It means searching the word of God and applying it daily to your lives as much as you can. You don't have to go to the evening service. but I think it would benefit you. Stuff comes up. But I think there are things that we prioritize over gathering with God's people here in Russell Kaiman. There are things that we even sometimes arrange at the same time as gathering with God's people. I promise you that that meeting you're going to, that coffee that you've arranged, maybe that gym session, or even just that show that you really want to watch on Netflix. None of it is as beneficial as being here and gathering with God's people. We need to sit under the word of God. We need to be praying with one another. We need to be praising him together. Friends, there is nothing that compares to that. Same applies. All these things God has provided for us here. Bible studies. Growth groups. Discipling relationships. Use them. Please, we urge you. Put yourself under these means of grace that God has poured out abundantly. 
before you in this desert, this spiritual desert of the UAE, of the Middle East. You live here in a place where all these things are available for you, for your benefit, for your discipleship. Friends, seek righteousness. People of God are to be a people that humbly recognize that they are not enough. They cannot do it, but primarily they know that they live before a holy and righteous God. How you live your life demonstrates who you see as the greatest authority in it. I urge you this morning through this passage, God is showing these people and us today that he is a holy and mighty God. He is the Lord of all. He is promising his judgment that there is a judgment day and that through his judgment, who he is will be made abundantly clear to all. And for many, sadly, sadly, this will be too late. Pray that this is not the case for you if you don't know Christ this morning. Don't be fooled into thinking he isn't real. Don't be fooled into thinking he doesn't care. We don't want you to leave here just blindly walking through life, filling your pockets with silver or gold or simple experiences, and then heading straight, head on, quickly into an eternal separation from God. Verse 3 was offered, and many ignored. In all of our lives, we place our faith is clearly obvious. If you're a Christian here today, then as we seek humility, as we follow his commands, as we seek righteousness, God has promised we are being conformed to his image and made more like Christ. Knowing more than Judah as we do now on this side of the cross, we stand now in the certainty here of Christ's finished work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. Judgment of God is coming. Friends, Christian here this morning, the wrath of God is already satisfied, already poured out and fully taken by Jesus Christ. God's anger does not disappear. His holiness does not change. Sin and rebellion must be dealt with. God's justice and his love meet perfectly in the giving of his only son, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, and only he, passes through death, through the wrath of God, to stand on the other side, so that on that final day, you stand, you, where you do not deserve, clothed, hidden, only in the righteousness that Christ bought for you. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory.